You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. My name is Kathleen McLean. I coordinate public programs here at the Art Gallery of Ontario, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here all tonight for our second public program connected to the Michelangelo exhibition, which I hope some of you have seen here at the Art Gallery of Ontario. It just opened last week. Tonight's program is um, around the notion of creativity and failure. And for those of you who are regular attendees at our talks, I recognize some of you. It's a little bit of a different format. We've invited speakers to speak for about seven minutes on the notion of creativity and failure in their practice. Following their talks, we're all going to go to the cafe, which is just right over there. And instead of an informal question and answer period, I mean, a formal one here, we'll have an informal one over there. And to entice you to join us, there will be coffee and tea and snacks. So for those of you who got here early, you've had a chance to read the bios of our speakers cycling through. I'm going to just briefly say their names again. And once we start, I'm not going to return to the podium to introduce them. They're just going to follow one after the other. So we're really thrilled that Laura DeWitt is here tonight, the curator of European Art at the Gallery, and more specifically, curator of the exhibition. Uh, Merica and Stephen Bauer are here. Merica will present. Jacob Zimmer. Michelle Pearson Clark, Paul Raff, and Ashley Good. So please join me in welcoming all of them, and I'll invite Lloyd to start us off. Hi, good evening. I'm thrilled that we're get to talk about creativity and failure tonight, looking at the questions raised by Michelangelo in our own lives and careers. I think that as curator of the exhibition, it'd be best to look at the process of making the show and the odd paths the project took that I'd like to share, to think about where this could have gone and a lot of the dead ends that we had to get to the simple, more powerful theme of Michelangelo's quest for genius, his struggle to bring his creative vision to life across many fields of endeavor, leaving behind, again, in his career, many dead ends. These were all... Uh, the, the works of art that uh, we'll be looking at are all have, uh, uh, all have something very serious to do with uh, the, the path we took. What we see up on the uh, screen here is Michelangelo's final work, the Rondanini Pieta. Uh, he's sculpting in his last days as he's whittling the block down further and further, trying to liberate the ideal figure trapped inside according to his own conception of sculpting. Searching for the core, his own core beauty and perfection in this most beautiful of materials, the pure white marble, but then making something ever more precarious, unstable, and heartbreaking, and essential in the grief it expresses. This is the, the role of the, the, uh, Mary holding her son, her dead son. Um, almost as I began the project of organizing a Michelangelo show for Toronto, um, the idea was raised by visiting Italian officials that somehow this sculpture might travel to Toronto. It was a crazy idea, but this was the beginning of a con conversation with the Italian Ministry of Culture, 
our embassy here in Canada, the embassy, uh, the embassy here in Canada, the embassy there in Rome, the head of the Milan museums, the organizer of exhibitions in Milan who's uniquely connected to the museums, and lastly, the curator of the museum. That's uh, finally at the threshold. Um, well, it turns out that uh, after that initial conversation with the very ambitious folks from the city of Milan, the, uh, the museum people actually took a very careful look at the sculpture and they, they examined it and found it to in fact be highly unstable. Not only could it not come to Canada, it couldn't even leave the room of the museum. Well, uh, and furthermore, they were unable to charge a fee. It was immoral and illegal to charge a fee for lending objects to Canada. Um, so that made it even more difficult for us to induce them to, to do so. So it was actually quite a fool's errand. Um, and my goodness, how Italy has changed. Uh, too bad for me, but for the better for Italy. So failure number one. Um, but the sculpture, I have to say, in the end, has almost nothing to do with the drawings from Florence. So in retrospect, it would have been a hugely expensive uh, prospect to ship it here and not even work that well with the eventual theme of the show. It was the one that got away. Um, I think it helped us in the end because all these things forced us to, 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 to be very, um, to concentrate our energy and effort on looking very carefully at Michelangelo's own drawings and the creative, which are all about the creative process. This is another work that almost came to uh, to Toronto. This is Peter Paul Rubens and Franz Snyder's Prometheus, uh, 1611 and 1612, a work that says an awful lot about failure. Huge amount, actually. Um, not that we all encounter this when we fail at things, but um, sometimes it feels like it. Until July of 2011, I was actually curator of this painting. I was the uh, curator of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. So needless to say, it was not that difficult for me to secure the loan of this painting to the AGO for this Michelangelo product. This painting was inspired uh, by a Michelangelo drawing of Tithius that Rubens had seen in Italy. And uh, Rubens, in fact, as a result of his Italian journey, became like one of Michelangelo's greatest followers and interpreters. He's the, he really turned the Michelangelo's physique into his own Rubensian physique. Uh, and most of all, most importantly for us, he turned his Michelangelism into an entirely new thing. This is, of course, a formidable painting and a great monument in the history of art. Um, but because of the smaller space that we ended up using, uh, we had to concentrate our presentation. So we couldn't just pick three artists. We had to concentrate on two, and this painting was out. Um, in a way, it's not such a bad thing. We could never have borrowed the matching Tidious drawing. Um, and this thing actually, this painting actually says very different, has a very different idea about failure embedded into it than uh, the exhibition that we produced. So failure number two. But in the end, um, again, these are, these are all very different lessons that we learned about focus and concentration uh, in, in getting a, a theme together. Well, then it brings us to the Age of Bronze. This is Rodin's great that sculpture. This is his, uh, his debut as an independent sculptor, freeing himself from the decorative work that he was doing for a long time for Auguste Carrier-Belleuse and, uh, uh, sorry, Ernest Carrier-Belleuse, and, uh, and, and emerging as, again, the great interpreter of Michelangelo of the 19th century. And 
taking Michelangelo's physique and turning it into the Rodin physique that we all know today. And this is his, his first great work, um, uh, The Age of Bronze, a sculpture that was criticized by, uh, in France as being so realistic it must have been cast from life. In fact, he was, it turned into a huge scandal that, uh, that really destroyed uh, Rodin psychologically um, and it made him swear that he was never ever going to ever 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 going to sculpt at life size again it would either be bigger or smaller so that and they can make these accusations um, it really embittered him and uh, and but of course sculpting larger than life has created the gigantic Rodin that we know today and, and it was actually a very great thing and I think here is the real kernel of the the kind of resistance that, that Rodin faced that really inspired him to, 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 to um, and motivated him to, to produce uh, all the more vigorous figures on, on a larger scale, to exaggerate the physique in, in a way to make it all the more um, energetic to, to, give us the, uh, to give us what we have today. Um, alas, this loan also failed. We were trying to get the, the cast from Ottawa. You think they would like us. Um, and I'm, of course, I'm telling you way too much here, but. Um, and nevertheless, I, it's, it was an elaborate excuse that we got in the, in the return letter, and uh, this sculpture would have uh, also um, given us an 11th Rodin, which apparently was way too many Rodins, according to the, the latest uh, reviews in the press. And uh, um, so, uh, uh, and I think it would have raised the whole question about posthumous casts in an unfortunate way. This was a lifetime cast. Uh, I believe strongly that Rodin posthumous casts are as authentic as anything else, and I only believe that because Rodin said so, and, uh, and he authorized the French state to cast um, using the plasters left behind in his estate, and I, I think that's a great issue to raise, and uh, it talks a great deal about artists' intent. But again, it allowed us to, to I think, more fully concentrate on, on a set, just a limited number of great projects that uh, exemplify Rodin's struggle against defeat and failure uh, and allowing amazing and really in, uh, unusually great works to, uh, uh, to emerge as a result. The last uh, works or artist that we ditched from our presentation was, uh, the, or the, the, the most contemporary artist was Bill Viola. Um, we were told again of a wonderful press reviews that in fact we should have used a uh, fellow Richard Lukács and Lisa Juskovic and even Conrad Norway. Um, but in fact, the, the direction that we had been headed going in was to look at the intense spirituality of, of uh, Michelangelo's late, late works. This is a, an issue raised by La Forme Mini Pieta. And um, uh, I think Bill Viola would have been an amazing addition to uh, Michelangelo's show. Um, but again, only if we had been in the larger space and because of the smaller space that we ended up, which I think was vastly better for the drawings. I don't know if you all agree, but um, I feel very uh, pleased with the, the more concentrated effect of the, of the, of the space. Um, so that bye-bye went Bill Viola, and that was a, um, another uh, route not taken. Lastly, uh, my last little um, anecdote about success and failure in Michelangelo is uh, um, the are dealing with the Italian agency Metamorphosi. Metamorphosi is headed by Pietro Polena, and 
Elaine is a wonderful example of success and failure, so I have to bring him up. Uh, it's really great to deal with him. He used to be a politician. In fact, he was um, one of the co-founders of the Democratic left. It left the, uh, himself, he uh, failed in his bid to lead the Italian Communist Party uh, and led this breakaway group and was part of the pro government uh, until it folded and then decided uh, at that moment that he was going to have a huge career change and went into the organization of art exhibitions. This has made a huge difference in how you can get a Michelangelo exhibition and we happened to hit the whole process at exactly the sweet moment because they had just started to do this and started to organize this substantial exhibition of great treasures, really the top, the very best drawings in the, in the Casal Marocchi uh, collection, um, as opposed to the kinds of things that we had been offered over the years because we've been trying for a long time to organize an exhibition of Michelangelo drawings from this wonderful uh, collection in Italy uh, with not much luck, uh, but with Pietro in the helm, suddenly you have an immensely professional organization um, that works almost like a German organization, which is really crazy, dealing with Italy, but it's very serious. There's a lot of dignity and pride about being able to uh, tour uh, very serious shows abroad um, and also set up the organization in ways that are uh, comprehensible and very predictable. So we're very thankful in a way for success and failure for on, a, on, on, the, uh, on the part of uh, Metamorphosi. And this is a, a lot, these are some of the eddies and byways of bringing you Michelangelo. So thank you. Hello. Um, so my name is Marika Bauer and um, Stephen and I are partners um, in a uh, small office uh, where we engage in architecture and interior design. And uh, we found this topic very interesting because in architecture you contend with failure on um, a daily basis. There's every possibility of failure at every turn from structural collapse to you know, building envelope failure to budget failure to client pleasure to schedule overruns to um, you name it. <laughs> and so the, um, the, the story I'm going to tell you is um, some of our successes and failures and, and what we have been learning from them and, and how we've gone through the process. So our, um, our interest as an office has, has stemmed a lot to do with um, the iconic image of house. Um, we come from a, a starting point of uh, having been trained and schooled in modern, modern design where modern very clearly equals a box. But getting into the residential world and, and looking at designing houses, the neighborhood, many traditional neighborhoods often rejected the box. So we thought to scrap the box and adopt the peak. So for the past 10 years we've been pursuing this thesis in, um, in our projects to see how we could bring a peek into a modern language of architecture. And we, uh, we delved into this with our very first project as a development project where we bought a piece of land and designed a house. And uh, there were a lot of opportunities for failure and a lot of wonderful successes that came out of it along the way. But I think um, in the end, it was where our understanding of a very um, tenuous relationship interconnected relationship between between time, money, and quality came to our awareness. 
when we finally did sell the house, um, which, which sold quickly enough, it, um, it was a financial flop. <laughs> it was a wonderful architectural experience, but uh, in the end we, we lost money. And so that came to become our sort of launching pad for forming um, the rest of the history, or the, the history since then to now, of how do we, how do we balance that, that tricky triad. And so I think the thing that we've come to through all of this is that between ideas and the real thing is this interface in architecture, which is drawings, the way in which we communicate our ideas to the people that are actually going to build them. And those drawings um, and how they're, how they're understood have been the thing that we have been growing from in every mistake that we've made along the way is to try to fine-tune those drawings. Because what, we, what we've found is that the, the more refined the drawing and the communication in that interface becomes, this big white box on the other side is the other. It's the room for invention and experimentation. That, that which we can control and define more clearly allows us to take bigger risks and bigger chances. And so over the course of the next um, series of years, project by project, we started to develop new methods of that interface. And in our first experience of it, we were thinking about it in a small interior element where we were looking at, we were looking at the steps involved in, in a fireplace re renovation, essentially, and um, trying to talk to the mason about how it would be built and what would happen first in order to get, achieve the details that we wanted. And in the end, we were very happy with the results, and, and it, it was, it was a, a happy experience. In that project, it was a drawn three-dimensional drawing where we, I mean, in a computer, we drew the, the angled lines to make it look three-dimensional. And we tried our hands at this again in another project looking at exterior elements where, again, we were trying to do something that we hadn't done before, and we wanted to avoid having sealant between a window and a facade. And, in, in order to go through it, I mean, it's a detail that a lot of people do, but in, in the budget range that we were working in, the trades weren't familiar with it. So we had to, again, find ways to illustrate it very clearly so that we could achieve something bigger and better than we could really afford. And again, it came back to that triangle of, of time, money, and quality, and, and how to keep everything in balance to achieve something that we otherwise didn't think we could. That's the... Uh, that's the result of that cladding project. In our next instance, um, we had a, a, new, a new breakthrough where we started to use modeling um, for, the, in the, in the, in the, for the first time in thinking about these, these same ways of communicating ideas. And it was in a scenario where we were looking at an entire room and, and how to communicate elements within a room where we had a series of, of built-in shelves that were going to be integrated into tile work. And the idea was, how can we communicate these clearly? And, and it, it, they were ill-suited to straightforward two-dimension drawings. And so this method helped us. And, and interestingly, again, it was a success and failure. And the, the, the success was that it allowed us to communicate these ideas and the process of how these shelves were going to be installed behind tile in a way that we coordinated three different trades, the, the tiler, the metal worker, and the contractor, all um, simultaneously with one set of drawings. But it, it was a bit of a flop in the sense that we had designed this thing so thoroughly in, the, in, in drawing that the actual real-life experience of having 
Tyler come, then metal guy come, then Tyler come back, and then Framer come back. We, we sort of set up this unbelievable loop that took about you know, an embarrassing amount of time to build. <laughs> so we kind of, we, we lost the balance on our, our triad of time, quality, and budget. And so, and so we carry on, and, and we, we, we come at it again um, in, uh, in the a project that we're just finishing construction on now, a new house, where um, we really came back to this approach in a whole building um, again, following a, a lineage of, of the pursuit of a, of a modern pitched roof on a on a on a um, on a house that speaks to a vernacular language, um, we we came to a design that wanted to represent the building form um, as a monolithic continuous form from roof to wall, uh, without eaves and without change in materiality, and happen to also be on a painfully tight budget, um, which isn't our specialty. It just, <laughs> it does happen to be uh, a lot of the instances where failure comes about. Um, so uh, in this scenario, the, the interesting thing for us was to think about how the, the real world of, of assembling sticks and attaching surfaces and skins and getting our head around all of the materiality and the thicknesses that those various materials have, how could we actually represent a point and have four surfaces meet at something that in essence is a point in space rather than a thick layer. And this um, hybrid situation of being able to use modeling, 3D modeling computer software and issued construction drawings that, that dimension these 3D models allowed us to come up with this sort of hybrid drawing set where we were able to mix and match 2D flat drawings with 3D representations. And it, and it, was, um, it, was, it, it's, it, it was quite a um, um, turning point for our office because it, it's when the drawing set and the production of the drawings became a collaborative process between, between us and the engineers and the trades building it. We could all work on the drawings, show them to them. We could talk about what we were going to move where and um, how, how we were going to achieve what we were after in a real one-to-one -one kind of experience, even though we weren't building it one-to-one, -one, we were building it in a model. And, um, and these, um, these experiences on this project, or sorry, this, this method we carried through to interior details um, space, you know, vol um, dimensioning volumes within the space as well as um, interior finishes. And in the end, um, we achieved what we were after from, um, from um, an impression standpoint. And uh, so far, we have an eaveless pitched roof, and we are waiting to see if it doesn't leak. But <laughs> our fingers are crossed. My name is Jacob Zimmer. I'm a theater director and uh, mostly that, theater producer. And, and I'm going to talk about Upper Toronto. Um, Upper Toronto is a project uh, that, that Small Wooden Shoe, which is the, the mostly theater company that I run. Um, we, we do a lot of things. Uh, we run a, a variety show and a podcast. Uh, we've done shows about scientific revolutions. Uh, and, and keep running coal miners. Um, we read plays in people's backyards sometimes, 
and, and work both, both in the intimate and the spectacular, trying to combine sort of new and old ideas and stories together. Um, this is at the AGO itself. Um, we find stories and, and try to try to bring people together. That's that's basically, um, and and that and that good art shouldn't rule out a good night out. Um, there's been in in performance at least a sort of divide between the the having a good time and the good ideas, and and that that's unnecessary and probably unhelpful. Uh, and and so we've we've tried lots of different things to to get there. Um, and, and really working on what, what a theater company might look like in this day and age and, and, how, and how to do that. And, and that involves a lot of questions about uh, long-term development, uh, abandoned projects, and failure. Uh, so so many, many years ago, to talk about Upper Toronto, many years ago, I wanted to make a show about maps. I was just like, I, I like maps. Let's make a show about maps. Um, and, and I wanted to make a show about maps, and I wanted to make a show specifically about these like French uh, 60s activist artists, uh, the Situationists, and, and uh, Constant and his new Babylon. And it was a city that you could move the walls around in. It was great. And again, I was like, I want to make a show about that. There's no good show to make about that. Um, <laughs> I, I had some ideas, but they were like by page two bored me already. And, and so I figured I should leave those. Um, but, but much later, uh, thanks, to, thanks to a friend who was, was doing an, also a sort of Cities of the Future project, he's like, do you want to do anything? Um, and also Nova Scotia naming conventions, um, of which, you know, there's like Muscadabit, Lower Muscadabit, Upper Muscadabit, Muscadabit East, like, so, so that had got into Upper Toronto, and I sort of got that name, and I was like, oh, that's, that's an idea. And so Upper Toronto is a science fiction design presentation. It proposes that we build a new Toronto in the sky. So you might imagine the CN Tower as a walk-in restaurant. Um, it, might, it might sit on top of Bay Street um, just to hold it. And then Lower Toronto and everybody in Lower Toronto would be forced to move up to Upper Toronto. And Lower Toronto would be abandoned for sort of intentional ruin and parkland. Um, this is a, obviously and of course a terrible, terrible idea. Um, nobody should ever forcibly relocate four million people. Um, but it's a terrible idea that lets, lets us imagine a new future, right? It lets us think like, oh, if we didn't have all of the histories of accident, the, the accidents of history that make a city what it is, what would we do? What would we do differently? What neighborhoods would we keep? What would we change? Um, and, and, and I didn't want it to be a bad city, right? There's lots, there's lots of dystopian cities like this. Um, in, in science fiction and reality. Uh, and, and so I didn't want that, so it needed to be a good city, a city that we'd want to live in, uh, the people designing it. So, so Tim Malley, this is my friend Tim, uh, we worked together on this project and we did a sort of series of presentations where we'd go in sort of like this and we'd, we'd talk for a little bit and then we would do, um, we'd invite other people, the people talking to, to join us in, in designing this city in the sky. And we did a lot of them. We did like these sort of things, lots of Lego, uh, lots and lots of Lego. Uh, <laughs> Legos make a plan. And all of them had a plan, but we would do these things in community centers, in libraries. Uh, we can talk about specific ones and the questions in the cafe. But we had this plan, and the plan was a good plan. 
um, because what I wanted to do is I wanted to skin presentation centers. So you know, the, like the condo presentation centers. I wanted, I wanted to take those across the city and turn them into upper Toronto presentation centers and people would just happen to be like waiting at the bus and they'd walk in and they could be told like this, this could be, what kind of city do you want in upper Toronto? Do you want this kind of house? What? We, could, we could do that sort of process with this fictional city in the sky and, and ask them to write their city councillor to, to get a referendum. Um, which again, I, you know, it's not going to happen and that's a good thing. Um, and the plan looks sort of like this. So starting around 2011, we would do these public consultations. Um, then, you know, around phase two, we would start working with architects and with planners and, and artists and designers and we'd really narrow down the project. And in three, we would build these things and it would be a big, big event. Um, this failed. Um, this, this is the first Upper Toronto, um, oh, sorry, I, my slide joke. Uh, this failed, though I prefer the term not active. Uh, this is the first Upper Toronto event in about a year and a half that you're at right now. Um, so it, it stalled, and there's a bunch of reasons. Um, lots, lots of small failures inside of that. I don't know that the project's a failure, but there are lots of small failures. Um, one of them is interest. Uh, and this is an interesting one for an artist. I lost interest in this project um, for a few reasons. Um, this is a project that I had the idea of in about 2008, sort of pre-2008. So we were in like pre-economic collapse, and we were in a David Miller Toronto. And so this was a soft, playful exaggeration of Torontopia, for this feeling of like, aren't we great? Aren't we going places? We're, we're really gonna turn into the bright big city in the future. And then 2008 happened, um, and, and that's not the story anymore, right? Uh, both economically, internationally, and just locally, that's not the story. I don't want to be playfully critiquing anything anymore. Um, it's now a question of being in the streets and like it's a very different question and the question of the project changed because it wasn't the same thing anymore. Um, and, and that changed my interest in it. I was just, I didn't want to be doing every program deciding how we weren't going to talk about Ford. Um, and so the satire changed, right? The level of critique, the level of what I was satirizing changed. I was like, yeah, we're, we're starting fresh, right? We're gonna do a clean sweep. And that was the Miller story and I just didn't, I wasn't interested in doing that with Ford. Um, and there were personal reasons. Uh, Tim got a job and moved to Boston. Uh, and, and he had been working unemployed and he didn't have any money. And so, so he left and he was really into architecture and science and, and weird ways of thinking about these things. And so he was really helpful. Um, and, and the other personal parts of that are, are um, I, this is, I was like, I don't know, I'm the architecture. Like, I may like theater people more than I like city people. And so when it came to like, who do I want to hang out with? I started developing theater shows instead of developing city models. Um, nothing personal, like everyone on an individual level, but just that's a personal thing and things fail because of personal reasons. Um, resources. This is, this is like the resources I mean, I mean basically time and attention is what I mean by when I say resources. Um, and that is, oh you can't see it there, good. It's boring and it's money. It's just money and it's, it's a boring reason like this thing of like, oh, the, our major projects that fail are the ones that we don't have any money for. 
those aren't unrelated, right? Like that's not, that's not in, that, in that project management, good, fast, cheap, pick two, uh, which is how theater people talk about that triangle, um, is that you get two of good, fast, or cheap. You don't get three. Uh, when, when you have to be cheap, when we don't have the time and resources, things, things fail more often. And there are systemic influences in that, and that's a problem, um, but it's true. Um, just like this is Toronto 75 years ago and Toronto now, um, somewhat falsely laid into each other. Um, and so failure on a big scale, I think this, this resource failure is a boring failure to me. It's not an interesting failure. Uh, but failure is an attempt at best to, to fail better. Um, this, is, this is the best picture to come out of a very bad public consultation we did at a like C-grade science fiction conference. Um, they invited us, we were like, this is amazing, and then it was not. Except for her uh, stone angel costume. Um, and I'm really into Fail Better. This is a screenshot of uh, Small Wooden Shoes Cafe Press site where you can buy uh, Fail Better teddy bears. And I really like the kid stuff. Um, the baseball hat, the boxer shorts with Fail Better on them is, is, there's something about that. So I like Fail Better. Um, but failure is not the goal in fail better. That's an important thing in, when we talk about failure and how great it is. Um, failure is not the goal. Uh, better is the goal, right? Better is the, the thing, and better relies on an acceptance of the failure, right? That I have to accept, I can do a project better if I accept the ways in which I've ever trying to fail. Um, I can accept that a degree of failure is inevitable, and that's inevitable because it's hard to turn pages. Um, and, and because I'm going to accept that everything is incomplete, right? Upper Toronto or any of these projects I've done, like how do you do a project about progress? It's going to be incomplete. And if I don't accept that, then I'm in trouble. Um, and, that, and that it's temporary, even the successes, right? Anything we build is going to be temporary. And that I have to know both my successes and my failures are temporary. Upper Toronto is a like fail thing that I don't do um, until I get a call to do it. And, and everything wiggles. This is another reason that things are going to fail. On a, on a scientific level, this is true that everything wiggles. And one of the things I've been trying to do in my practice is find a way to not hold too tightly. That if I hold too tightly to something, then I'm going to break it. Then I'm going to get the least interesting failure possible, which is for me crushing an idea to death. Um, but if I can find a way to hold it a little loosely, uh, without sort of intentionally dropping it, because that's also not what I want. Um, everything wiggles. And, and in doing this, that we can do the sort of overall mantra that I, that I try to, to keep in my mind as I'm developing projects, and it's that we admit what's going on and we try to help. Right? This basic mantra that I, that I tell myself in order to not get discouraged at the small failures, um, to ask me, uh, myself to, to acknowledge some of those failures, my own, uh, the world's, uh, my peers, um, and ask us also to not linger on those, not to fret about them, but to try to see our failures, admit that they're there, and try to make them better. Thanks. Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Michelle Pearson-Clark, and uh, I'm an artist. I work in photography and video, and I'm also a student. I'm doing my MFA at Ryerson. And for me, in uh, thinking about the relationship between failure and creativity in my practice, I have queer theory to thank. 
or actually maybe to blame, but you can let me know after. Um, queer theory is what shapes the way that I think about that relationship right now in my practice. For the last decade or so, queer studies has really taken up failure as a focus of study, and queer theorists have turned their attention to critiquing the dominant models of failure and success in our society and in our culture. And what these queer critiques share is the reframing of failure. So not so much of thinking of failure as a negative space that's opened up by its subordination to success in our society, but as its own productive space with its own logic, its own practices, and the potential for producing new ways of thinking and knowing. Uh, Jack Halberstam has produced the most extensive account of queer failure to date in his 2011 book, The Queer Art of Failure. And in his book, he builds a case for adopting failure as an oppositional way of living, as a way of resisting the punishing norms of a heteronormative neoliberal capitalist society. So he recognizes that failure has its dark side, it's associated with negative emotions, negative experiences, but he suggests that under certain circumstances, failing, losing, forgetting, unmaking, undoing, unbecoming, and not knowing may in fact offer us more creative, more cooperative, and more surprising ways of being in the world. So, of course, any of us is free to fail into a non-conformist way of life, but Halberstam also argues that failure is inherently queer because we very quickly fail to meet the gender and sexuality standards you know, set for us by our families and by our society. And as such, negativity and deviance and loss have long been associated with queerness. So Halbassam proposes that failing is something that queers do and that we've always done exceptionally well. But in this embracing of failure, it's important to note that for queers, it is less a question of our choosing failure, as Jacob just talked about, but more a question of choosing what to do with the failure that has chosen us. So for a queer artist like myself who embraces that failure, it presents an opportunity. So I choose to work with failure, to explore themes such as disappointment, loss, loneliness, alienation, and awkwardness. So for me, my queer failure is actually the source of my creativity. But as you can see, I am not only queer. So for me to unpack, unpack my practice more thoroughly, I have to expand Halberstam's concept to think about all the ways in which I fail. So yes, as a queer person, I fail at straightness, but as a black person, I also fail at whiteness. As a masculine woman, I fail at femininity, and frankly, as a bit of a dandy, I also fail at being a proper butch lesbian. <laughs> Uh, and as an immigrant person, I fail at Canadianness. So for me in my practice, I make the choice to mine all of these sites of failure for creative inspiration. I choose to make art with the failures that have chosen me. But I also need to say something about vulnerability. There's tremendous vulnerability in failure, no matter how you think of failure. And I really think that it is this quality of failure that is the most generative for my practice. I have experienced nothing but strength in my personal life when I've allowed myself to be vulnerable and I pursue the same outcome in my work. So this is not news to you if you are one of the 17 million people who have watched this TEDx talk in which Brene Brown urges us all to embrace vulnerability and to reap its rewards of human connection. As she so clearly states, vulnerability is the birthplace of innovation, creativity, and change and 17 million people can't be wrong. 
So you might be asking, how do I activate this failure? What does vulnerability as Muse actually look like? Well, what happens when you propose publicly in front of 600 other lesbians only to have your marriage end only five years later? You embrace this failure and you make art, of course. So let me tell you about what I made. As some of you might know, it's really common for queer women to be friends with their ex-partners. And I think that this in itself is a creative cooperative response born of queer failure and exclusion. In the case of my ex-wife and I, we are not friends. So on top of experiencing personal failure due to my marriage ending and feeling like I had failed my community by not giving them a happy ever after ending after a grand public proposal, uh, I also failed at post-relationship lesbian friendship. So, meta-failure. But that led to me thinking of other failed ex-partners like us. Other ex-partners who have not meeted, meeting this lesbian cultural norm of being friends. And I thought about what type of creative intervention could possibly help us to overcome the hurt, the guilt, the shame. What other way of being in the world could this failure give us access to? My answer was this project. It's called It's Good to be Needed. And in this project, I photograph queer women who are ex-partners, but who are not friends, holding hands with each other. This is the first photograph that I took. You can think of it partly as a participatory performance project and partly as a documentary photography project. They choose a location, they hold hands, and I take a photograph. In this work, these queer women choose to embody failure and vulnerability, and they choose to experience what knowing is produced when intimacy is performed despite time and distance and hurt and conflict. In sharing their failure through these photographs, my, my participants and I seek to allow viewers an opportunity to reflect on the possibilities for connection, for letting go, and ultimately for knowing differently in their own lives. And hopefully tonight, we did the same for you. Thank you. I have to confess, um, that when a colleague of mine at my studio told me that the Art Gallery of Ontario had told me to speak about creativity and failure, I felt less than flattered. <laughs> um, but I did what I teach my nine-year-old, because this is what I think of, and um, I did what I teach my nine-year-old grade four daughter to do when she's doing her schoolwork, when she's trying to answer a question, and she knows that the most important thing about answering a question is to understand the question. So um, I sought to understand the question better. Failure is not a word that I'm used to in the lexicon of my creative work, nor with um, the artists and other creative people that I collaborate within and outside of my studio. Um, I find that artists tend to talk more in terms of making things work and trying and the kind of success, the kind of process of trying to get to a successful artistic um, form of sorts. Um, so it, 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 I, I also teach my daughter to 
um, use the dictionary uh, as, a, as a tool, and this is from the Oxford English Dictionary. It's an excerpt of the definition of failure, lack of success, a lack of desirable quality. Suddenly I was feeling more comfortable with this word, just it's putting it back into the lexicon of artistic work and the state of not functioning, which looks more like that. Um, my daughter also teaches me that I can just um, internet search images under the word. I don't have to use the dictionary. And a lot of the images of failure in a Yahoo web search looked like this. And I think we uncovered a failing of the Oxford English Dictionary to recognize a fourth definition of failure, which is an emotional sense of defeat. Um, then I dug in a little further and read that um, tonight was not just about failure, that the theme of the evening had to do with ambition, exploration, and frustration in the creative search um, after Michelangelo. And that prompted me, that's a lot, of, a lot of lexicon, a lot to think about there, that prompted me to phone um, an artist I know, a visual artist who happens to live in Toronto, Michael Jensen, who I know knows a lot more about Michelangelo than I did, do, to, um, to talk about it. And um, he talked a lot and he told me some things that I didn't know, including he told me um, the story of the Sistine Chapel and the commission. And I may fail to accurately remember what he told me, and he may fail to have told me uh, the story accurately, but this is the story as I understand it, and I'm going to impart it to you right now. Michelangelo was commissioned, and this is uh, not a Michelangelo work, this is Da Vinci's Last Supper, to do the Sistine Chapel ceiling as a fresco. He was not happy about it. He was under tremendous political pressure to do it. It was going to take a tremendous amount of his mostly time and energy, like those kinds of resources, away from his sculptural, architectural, and other practice. Um, and he was working in a medium he was um, less comfortable in, um, that is painting and frescoes more specifically. What I didn't know, uh, um, as Michael told me, is that um, uh, the subject he was told needed to be the, the, um, the content of the Sistine Chapel fresco was the Last Supper, which probably made um, symbolic and liturgical sense to him, and it makes sense to me, it probably made sense to the Pope or whoever dictated that to him. Um, but he found after some time, after months of toiling um, of, and trying to make this content work, um, that, um, that it, it, he wasn't on a path to success, and I'm told that in his assistance actually destroyed the fresco one evening and he fled the Vatican and fed, fled Rome um, and went into hiding as a refugee. Um, well hiding in the quarries um, um, in, the, in, in the, the countryside of Italy, um, he conceptualized, um, he reconceptualized what the Sistine Chapel could be. He had a vision, he had a concept, it had a whole different um, um, set, you know, I, idea to it about um, what it was portraying, uh, and he marched back to the Vatican under the risk of being uh, jailed, excommunicated, perhaps worse, um, and persuaded the powers that be to allow him to pursue um, this concept and vision. So it's terrific to operate at a grade four level and learn how to answer a question, but what I teach architecture students and art students and design students at university is that you don't want to solve a problem, you want to problematize a situation. Problematize isn't in every dictionary, it's not in the Oxford Online Dictionary, got this from Wikipedia this morning. To consider the concrete 
or existential elements involved as challenges or problems that invite the people involved to transform those situations. And it went on to say it is a method of defamiliarization of common sense. So I would like to share with you um, briefly the story of the first ever and smallest ever building I was commissioned to design, um, which was a garden pavilion in this garden uh, in North Toronto, typical of a Toronto garden. It's long and narrow, and this one is lush with lovely um, mature trees. And I had the tremendous benefit that my client, Susan, who's back to us, is an artist and an art educator, art educator and was my art teacher, um, and allowed me tremendous latitude, including a considerable amount of time uh, to conceptualize, problematize, and develop a design um, for a gazebo for her garden, which arguably she could have gotten a lot sooner and for less money and with a lot of e greater ease by just driving to Home Depot and, or you know, getting a build-your-own-gazebo kit and doing something that looked a lot like your tr traditional Western gazebo. But I problematized the situation and I knew she wanted to enjoy her garden more. I can see she needed somewhere for her and her members of her arts cooperative and friends and family and so on to sit. I could see that she probably needed a little more shelter than what she had here. And so I went through a considerable process of drawing, and this is exploring er the ergonomics of sitting, spatial configurations, material form, the potential form of the shelter of the roof, this for me, this is, these are a fraction of, of more than six months and two sketchbooks full of um, explorations. This one was actually a eureka moment where I realized that the geometric, the geometric relationship of the sky and particularly sun angles and the earth where we all, you know, are sitting and on which we, we live had, you know, that that was probably um, the key to the issue. And these are sketches of me thinking about sunlight and I realized part of problematizing the situation of somewhere to um, sit in a Canadian garden is in Toronto is that in weather like this, it's October now, when I went out to the park today, I wanted to sit in the sun. In July, I wanted to sit in the shade. I wanted to design a structure that provided for both those conditions, even though it's static. This is on the windowsill of my studio, uh, toothpicks and coffee stir sticks. Um, I also tell um, architecture and design students, if, if you don't make things that are very, very ugly and dissatisfying in your creative process, then you're not doing the work it takes um, to problematize and, and raise the level of the ambition of what you're doing. You're, sim you're doing things that are aesthetically satisfying, you're gratifying tastes. You're not doing work that could potentially be original and eventually shape tastes, um, at least a little bit. Michelangelo actually managed, I think, to reform art altogether, uh, but that's on a, another level. This is the final model, and here's the building. So it's a destination, it's open at the end, so it allows the space of the garden to flow. It's, it's kind of bowed ceiling, speaks to the bowed boughs of the trees. It's made out of simple off-the-shelf two-by-fours put together by Canadian carpenters with galvanized screws. It's layered, it's simple. It's complex. The table is a mirror, so you look down into the sky, and it speaks to the vernacular architecture of the artist's studio and the, her house beyond on the street. There's a word that hasn't been mentioned, obsess. I think it's kind of inherent if you've seen the exhibition. 
Um, I won't, I'm going to run out of time, so I won't read the definition. But one of my obsessions has to do with light in relationship to sky, which you've just seen in that pavilion. But I wanted to show how it comes through um, in one aspect of a house design. Um, this is a house in Toronto. Its living room has floor to ceiling, wall to wall glass to maximize natural light, which creates the problem of um, not having privacy and problematizing that. I wanted to um, not necessarily solve it with off the shelf sheer curtains or Venetian blinds, um, but to do, to, we did this glass privacy screen made out of 475 pieces of off the shelf glass. This is a sample of my studio just glued together with silicone and kind of showing, instead of using glass as a, as a kind of so maybe in wanting to be invisible medium, um, it's actually trying to show the inherent beauty of glass and kind of challenging the relationship of private person inside and public person outside and sort of turning the world into a kinetic impressionist painting. I'll show you a few seconds of a time-lapse video um, shot one winter going from night to day. It becomes an element um, between, you know, architecture ultimately is what kind of separates you from the world in a way, just the way we are in this theater right now. But this somehow registers um, the dynamics of the natural world, including light and view around it. And finally, one more, more recent project. This is a civic gateway, a public artwork, a sculpture, a permanent sculpture for the city of Regina, which again follows the obsession of problematizing how to demark a city's age, give it a unique identity, and play into ultimately what it means to live in Saskatchewan, where I happen to spend my childhood, where you mediate a very vast ground with a sublime and very large sky in a sort of Stonehenge-like manner. In this case, 17 monoliths that follow the path of the sun from left to right, from sunrise to noon to sunset over the course of the longest day of the year. This is it being installed. And I will wrap it up there, but this is a photo of my favorite Michelangelo drawing from the exhibition that I saw today. And in it, I really felt the problematizing of the situation, the raising the ambition, and the tremendous kind of energy um, that it takes um, to do great, um, original, uh, fulfilling, creative work. Thank you. says that creativity is allowing yourself to make mistakes. Art is knowing which ones to keep. I learned pretty early on in school that I was not creative. My aptitude was tested, and as it turned out, I was pretty awful at just about everything that had to do with creativity, drawing, painting, acting, music, dance, poetry, you name it, I was bad at it. Well, I happen to be kind of okay at science and math, uh, which tends to be, quite honestly, overvalued by our education system. So I was placed firmly in the science nerd category. But of course, these labels are ridiculous. There is science and precision in the most wonderful works of art. And there's creativity and art in the most groundbreaking science. Not to suggest for a second that this is groundbreaking science, but in my grade nine biology class, 
I decided to microwave my bean seeds. Yeah. Quite honestly, I just wanted to see what would happen. Secretly, I was kind of hoping they would mutate. But my desire to make Teenage Mutant Ninja beans uh, apparently does not actually earn you any marks. I was supposed to learn about photosynthesis or how plants grow or something like that. It doesn't really matter. What I actually learned was that if you microwave seeds, it stunts the growth of the plant. And for these particular bean seeds, anything more than 25 seconds, and they did not germinate at all. I thought that was kind of cool. My teacher did not. Because I, I wasn't supposed to do something new. I wasn't supposed to change my definition of the problem I was trying to solve. I was supposed to do what I was told. That's what I was being tested on. So I want us all to take a moment right now and unlearn everything that school taught us about failure. Because that, that notion towards valuing testing over learning is totally insane when you think about it. Right? It's as if they're saying that all the world needs is for us to be automatons, solving problems that have already been solved, asking no questions for eight hours a day. School teaches us to be consumers of knowledge, not producers of it. So we take in that information, spew it out when we're told, and don't get me wrong, I love to learn from others. But that's all we're taught how to do. When are we taught how to produce, to self-authorize, to shake things up, do things differently, to truly create? And I get it. It is scary. We're not taught how to do it. And it will probably lose you marks on your bean project. But the world needs more from us than to be automatons doing what we're told. Which brings me to a story from Bales and Orland's book, Art and Fear. And I'm just going to read the excerpt because it's just a, a brilliant example. Um, a ceramics teacher announced on opening day that he was dividing the class into two groups. All those on the left side of the class, of the, or less, left side of the studio, he said, would be graded solely on the quantity of work they produced. All those on the right side, solely on its quality. On the final day of class, he would bring the scale and weigh the work of the quantity group. 50 pounds of pots rated an A, 40 pounds of B, and so on. Those being graded on quality, however, needed only to produce one pot, albeit a perfect one, to get an A. Come grading time, a curious fact emerged. The works of highest quality were all, all, produced by the group being graded on quantity. It seemed that while the quantity group was busily churning out piles of work and learning from their mistakes, the quality group had sat theorizing about perfection and in the end had little more to show for their efforts than grandiose theories and a pile of dead clay. This is the link between creativity and failure for me. This idea that there are these prodigies, that creativity is something that you're born with is unhelpful because the most brilliant ideas don't just come out of thin air, bestowed upon, bestowed as gifts upon creative geniuses. 
but rather those brilliant ideas are the result of and willingness to accept the validity of learning by doing. And that it might take 49 pounds of gradually improving clay pots before we build our capacity to create something that's truly beautiful. What's more, it's the very ugliness of those failed attempts that inspires that creativity needed to improve. And this is my work. This is what I do full time. I help people, teams, organizations create the space to test unusual ideas and recognize the validity and the necessity of learning by doing. But this, this shift in our culture requires a more productive relationship with failure. So I'm going to close with a quick activity that will help us all start to build that more productive relationship with failure. So really quickly, what does it look like to fail? Just, just yell it out. What, what do our bodies do when we fail? Anyone can answer. Slump. Totally. What does it look like to fail? Cry. Grimace. Absolutely. I am going to call on my good friend here, Benjamin Zander. Now, Benjamin Zander is a educator and a conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra, and he has a few things to say about what happens to our body when we fail. All the time. And the students try to do right, as long as he's done what he said. That's what you do right, as long as you're saying it, then it won't be wrong. <laughs> now, I believe the exact opposite, which is you cannot learn anything unless you make a mistake. So I tell my students, when you make a mistake, celebrate. And the way to celebrate is like this. Oh, fascinating! It's actually quite. <laughs> All right, thank you, Benjamin Zander, uh, for your insights. <laughs> Perhaps you can guess what I am going to ask you to do next. I would like you all to think of a failure, your own failure, and let yourself go back there, really go back. And instead of letting your body pull down, on three, we are all going to throw our arms up and yell, how fascinating. I get it? Chuckles might mean you're feeling a little bit silly, awkward about doing this. It's okay, you can close your eyes so nobody can see you. But for real, we're going to do this. <laughs> so I want everyone to think about their failure. And on three, are you ready? One, two, three. How fascinating! <laughs> Thank you all. Yeah. <laughs> Very obviously, that is a, a very simple activity, and I admit a little bit silly, but I love it because it is also quite profound. Imagine if every time you failed, every time your, your colleagues, your partners, your, your coworkers failed, instead of criticizing, blaming, punishing, you simply just said, how fascinating. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, 
please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.